Get ready for a contract magic journey on the Construction Cashflow Podcast. I'm your host, Stu Davidson, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to the incredible Sarah Fox, a true industry master with over 25 years experience. From consultant appointments in 500 words to collateral warranties in 500 words, her books are blueprints for crystal clear contracts. Imagine contracts that are straightforward and hassle-free. Dive into her wisdom at 500words.co.uk and get ready to revolutionize your contract game. Sarah's here to unlock cash flow power for developers, contractors and more. Stay tuned for a dose of contract clarity and empowerment. The other thing that happened is lots of people told me I couldn't write a contract in 500 words, which is red rag to a bull to anyone who's got that sort of personality. When people said I couldn't do it, I decided the best way to prove that I could do it was to write books about how I can do it, why I can do it and how it works. So that was kind of trying to silence the critics. And so that's how I got to effectively being the 500 word lawyer. Specialist subcontractors aren't to a penny. They're specialists for a reason main contractors need specialist subcontractors and they need to start coming closer to a balanced contract rather than just feeding them with a massive one-sided contractual stick. When it comes to drafting contracts for people, I always ask them what their values are as a business because I think they should be in your contract. That's what's different about you, Stu, uh, as opposed to other consultants. And most contracts don't set out what the client's key priority is. So how can we possibly know Um, how to make decisions as a project progresses if we don't know what their key priority is. The main contract will almost always say, well, we're working under whatever name standard form. You have to then have the standard form subcontract. Well, that's not actually true. But if they're going into construction, hoping for no risk, they're in the wrong business. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Construction Cashflow podcast. It's such a thrill to have have you on today. How are you doing? Yep, I'm doing good today. Thank you. Sarah, tell us a bit more about your story, how you got to where you are now. Uh, So I'm a construction lawyer by background. Uh, I've got a master degree, then became a construction lawyer. um, And as part of being a lawyer, I was training other lawyers and training clients on construction contracts. So I'm a dual qualified lawyer trainer and realised fairly couple of years into training people that nobody understood the construction contracts that we use in UK construction. That came, went from everyone, project managers, architects, consultants, contractors, subcontractors, and in fact, the lawyers. So uh, that seemed to me to be a bit of a mistake because a contract is just a tool to help you do business, not just paper for the sake of paper. Um, so I developed a 500 word contract pool actually as part of a training program to help people to understand what could go in there, what should go in there and to help them to pick it apart. Because I also found that if I gave them a contract to pick apart that was mine, then they were more open to me picking theirs apart as well. Uh, but once I'd introduced it to people, then they decided that they quite liked that idea in the and the whole sort of 500 word concept came into being. Um, the other thing that happened is lots of people told me I couldn't write a contract in 500 words, which is red rag to a bull to anyone who's um, uh, got that sort of personality. Uh, and when people said I couldn't do it, I decided the best way to prove that I could do it was to write books about how I can do it, why I can do it and how it works. So that was kind of trying to silence the critics. 
um, in that sort of sense. So that's how I got to effectively being the 500 word lawyer. That's a magnificent story. And I know previously I've you've helped me with a contract with consultancy agreements. And you know what I found is not only did it make it much simpler and there was less time. My previous appointment, consultant's appointment was about 100 pages long. And what that meant was it was a long onboarding process. And once I got the contract that you prepared for five, in 500 words for me, I found the onboarding process was so much slicker. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, the I lost contracts, uh, some commissions with when I had the old long one, which I gained when I had the short one. So I think it's really interesting because although most of the contracts I write aren't 500 words, it's 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 more of the framework starts at 500 words. I think what people don't realise is that a contract should be a useful tool to them and if they're kind of taking the wrong hammer or the wrong saw or whatever they whatever tool they would normally use if it was blunt or inappropriate or rusty they wouldn't use it and yet with contracts we seem to be quite happy to sit back and go well it's not very good but um whereas actually a really good contract can get you to more clients to say yes more clients to say yes quicker can get you to ensure that the clients and suppliers you work actually understand what they're meant to do so you manage expectations you you kind of smooth the relationship along rather than kind of the contract being a bit of a barrier to that relationship so that's what i really focus on is trying to bring parties together using contracts rather than separate them out people sign them never really read them and it goes in the goes in the drawer so how does the 500 word contract help that process in terms of the people knowing what they're meant to be doing? So there's two different things that we wanted to do. Um, and actually, the 500 word contract was designed so that you could pin it to a notice board, stick it on a fridge or read it on a phone because it's that simple. But we did lots of things. I work with information designers to look at color coding, to look at putting the information in chronological order, to making sure that each party had a real chunk that said exactly what they have to do rather than having to pick through all the different things. So we used quite a lot of legal design principles when we were developing it. But the other thing that we wanted shorter, simpler contracts, whether they're 500 words or two and a half thousand, doesn't really, doesn't really matter. We wanted it to have all the information you needed on the front page as a sort of table of information. So you don't have to check through the definitions, then the clauses, then the clause references, then the particulars in order to work out what job this is about. Because fundamentally, we're simple people, but we're also busy people. We, If we had like a one page summary of something, that's our, that's our idea of useful tool. So that's what we did. So we took the kind of current concept of contracts and shook it up a bit, held it by the ankles, dangled it over a balcony, shook all the useless stuff out and then put it back together in a slightly different way. Because for me, a contract that's shoved in a door is a waste of everyone's time and money and energy. And we only have limited time, money and energy. So let's not waste it on something which isn't a useful tool. Who would this type of contract be for? Well, it's really interesting. I was I'm just about to publish my last book about simple subcontracts. And I was looking back at the forewords and the introductions that were done for my previous four books. And Richard Saxon, who was once chair of the JCT, said that when he went to Japan, he uh, was looking at a multi-million pound project which had done on a single piece of A4, so about 500 words. So Whilst at the beginning I thought maybe I could get big projects to go for 500 words, the reality is it's for most of the people who do smaller value work. So they think there's less risk. 
I think the concept, though, should work from the bottom up. If I could get banks to sign up to a 500-word contract, then we know that it would take over the in sector quite quickly. Because I think what we found in the pandemic, Stuart, and I'm sh pretty sure you and you got this experience as well, was that when the pandemic hit, people were flicking through their really big contracts, if they could find them, if they could find the draw or electronic draw they'd been put in, they were flicking through them to try and find out what the answers were. And there weren't any good answers in most of those contracts. But if they had a contract that had built a really good relationship, then they could have just sat down like the adults they were and said, look, this is really unexpected. We're not really sure what's going to happen. How should we solve this for the benefit of both of us? Because too long there's been this sort of client holds all the cards approach in contracting, but the client doesn't hold all the cards. There's a limited number of people who can do their project for them, who have that availability, who have that skill set, who want to do that project. So actually the clients need the project team as much as the project team needs the clients. And, and that sort of balance, the fairness, the balance of trust has kind of been missing. We've over-lawyered and over-engineered our contracts to the point where we've created barriers and created silos and created blame culture and all this kind of stuff. I want to bring us back and say, look, we're a fabulous sector. We could do this. Let's just not use the contracts as a way to cause problems. Let's use it as a way just to make it simple, easy. Let's just get on with the job because I've never met someone who went into construction for the paperwork except me. I like your idea of the bottom-up approach rather than you know, maybe as it's traditionally done, a standard form of contract imposed on the supply chain. It kind of disadvantages especially subcontractors. You know, they're signing up to things they don't understand and they haven't got their own T's and C's. Would you recommend that subcontractors have their own T's and C's? And what advantage would that be for them if they were tendering perhaps for a, a contract with a larger contractor? Well, the problem is that they don't have their terms and conditions and in their tender, which is an offer to carry out the works, they're not setting the legal standards, the expectations that they're asking for. So they're, they're always on the back foot. So the main contractor will almost always say, well, we're working under whatever name standard form. You have to then have the standard form subcontract. Well, that's not actually true. They want you to have the standard form subcontract because they think it's the best way that they can minimise their risk. But if they're going into construction hoping for no risk, they're in the wrong business. So let's 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 avoid the idea that they can just pass risk seamlessly without accepting any. So subcontractors, if they've got their own terms, they're setting out their stall and they're saying, this is how we want to do business with you. And they can have simple terms that say when they want to get paid, you know, how they want to deal with processes, you know, how much notice they want before they get on site, the kind of things that are important when it comes to running your business getting paid on time, cash flow, all that stuff. Um, and I think having their own terms means they've actually thought about it and they can be treated a bit more seriously or taken a bit more seriously, but also to say, right, now that we're going into a negotiation because you like our scope, you like our price, you like our program, we've got one set of terms, which is your terms, which is maybe uh, one-sided and we've got our sets. How can we meet in the middle? Because the reality is a lot of contractors will just bully their subcontractors and go, you have to sign up to our terms. You have to do it this way. And I've seen a subcontract recently that asked that said we only pay by check. That, that's nonsense. They don't pay everyone by check, but they want to pay their subcontractors by check because it gives them a bit more time before that money comes out of their bank account. But that, again, is using a subcontractor as your um, cash flow. Why, why would they do that? So a lot of contractors 
are sort of just playing a game. They're playing a contractual game. They're not being fair, but subcontractors can start to set the agenda. And eventually, main contractors might go, actually, we quite like these simple contracts because they're easy to get agreed. They cover most of the bases. We know that the commercial relationship is probably more important than the legal terms anyway. Um, if we don't spend so much time, energy and money negotiating these complicated subcontracts, we can then put that time, energy and money into resolving issues as they happen on the project. Who, I mean, where would we rather spend our money on a bunch of lawyers and publishers of standard form contracts to create really complicated stuff or in the project, on the project team, making sure that it all goes smoothly. For me, I know where they should be spending their money, which is why I want to give them the tools and the skills not to spend huge amounts of money on lawyers to get complicated contracts, which they then never use, but to actually take control, be empowered. You know, this is part of running your business. It's a tool. Why don't you, you should understand it just the same way you understand everything else. The specialist contractor knows their trade. And they know the best way to go about the trade and perhaps the best way to draft their contractor obligations, for example. Because main contractors don't realise they could gain a lot from that if they sat down, as you say, at the beginning. And who's going to do what, where, why and when contract needs to cover certain presidents, you know, sort of Construction Act or what have you. Construction Act doesn't always, I mean, like any act, it's not, it's not uh, bulletproof, you know, and it doesn't always work in the way that's best best for each individual project it's kind of a a, a, a sweeping type of uh, contract but the principles are there but how can that be reinforced in a short contract but also how the parties are going to behave with each other if something comes up so the construction act only really deals with two aspects of co the construction process so they're not uh, one of them is payment and I know payment is critical it's a biggest single cause of dispute globally across any sector is payment when you're going to get paid now the construction act has got some pretty gluey terminology when it comes to construction act and the due date and the paid final date don't mean anything neither does notified sum etc etc so what subcontractors can do is actually take the principles of the construction act and set out how they want to get paid and how those payment notices, payment applications and invoices will work for them. So they actually focus on the payment bit. When it comes to disputes, they can simply say, if we have a dispute, we'll go to adjudication under the scheme because that's good enough. Um, you don't need to mess with the adjudication process very much. Um, so why would you? You know, there's, there's too much interfering for interfering sake in quite a lot of the time. But that's only two aspects of a project. It doesn't deal with things like extensions of time, defects, remedies. And we have all sorts of processes and construction which keep us away from disputes in courts. And they're really useful to kind of reflect who should be taking the risk, who should be bearing the cost and time consequences of those. And actually, if you write them in a short contract, it's easier to pick them out because you don't have to go through the long list and you know, clause two and clause four of JCT to work out when you're going to get time and money. You've just got them written down. You've got a simple process. So, you know, most people want their lives to be made easier, not more complicated, because we live in quite complex times. <laughs> you know, so why would we make want to make it harder to do business, harder to do projects, harder to, you know, have a nice relationship with somebody? We don't. Specialist subcontractors aren't to a penny they're specialists for a reason so we need to reflect the fact that actually 
main contractors need specialist subcontractors and they need to start coming closer to a balanced contract rather than just being them with a massive one-sided contractual stick. It is often said that find clients that share your values. Uh, it's quite an important thing. How can that, how can you, uh, through sh a shorter contract or taking this approach, how can you identify with that maybe a client that shares your values? Is there a place for setting out those values or even the mission of the project within that shorter agreement? Completely. The second line of my 500-word contract, the very first one, was the client's key priority is tick one off time, cost or quality. Now, we, we have other objectives nowadays. It could be sustainability or net zero or you know innovation is their key priority. But most contracts don't set out what the client's key priority is. So how can we possibly know um, how to make decisions as the project progresses if we don't know what their key priority is? When it comes to drafting contracts for people, I always ask them what their values are as a business because I think they should be in your contract. That's what's different about you, Stu, uh, as opposed to other consultants. And the same is true of specialist subcontractors. I work with a company in the facilities management sector and they, uh, one of their company values was to pay a real living wage. And we put it in their contract and said, every year we will need to uh, increase our prices to reflect the fact that we pay all our staff a real living wage. And that was quite a good way of getting rid of people who were just wanting a cheap product because they said, well, you know, our value is that we will only pay the real living wage. If you don't want to work with us because of that, that's fine. We don't want to work with you either. And there have been companies who've used trust as a value and made sure that their contracts are balanced and said, yeah, we lost a bit of work at the beginning, but actually now we've got people we want to work with. You know, we've got a good level of work and they're people we like to work with because trust is one of our values and it's embedded in our contract, embedded in our processes. It helps us to do business the way we want to do business. So I think your contract, because until someone signs, they're not actually a client or a supplier, they're a prospect. I think your contract is part of your marketing. I think it should say what's different about your business, what your values are. It should represent you uniquely as a business. If it's you know, one size fits all for every person in the sector, I don't think it's doing anyone any favours. So whilst I don't want everyone to have long, complicated, bespoke contracts, I don't mind them having short, simple, bespoke contracts because they're quick enough to read. You know, your contract's, what, four pages? Nobody hasn't, nobody can say, oh, I haven't got time to read it. And also, because it's simply written, it's got no jargon. Nobody's going to get to the first paragraph and go, oh, I've come across a word I don't understand. I'm going to have to get a dictionary out. I'll tell you what, I'll leave it till later or I'll never get round to it. So I think, you know, there's all sorts of ways our contracts should do more for our businesses um, by showing what's different about us, showing what our values are, showing how we like to treat our clients and how we want to be treated, managing expectations properly, you know, building trust, you know, being clear, not hiding stuff in the short print, not small print, not hiding stuff in jargon, not hiding stuff in Latin and definitions and all this kind of stuff, being upfront, transparent and ready for the 21st century. I mean, most contracts look like they did it about 150 years ago when we started getting standard form contracts in the UK construction sector. They've not moved on, but the rest of the sector has. So let's move on with it. So what is the future, do you think, for digital contracts or digitising the 500 word or the shorter form contract, in your view? So, I mean, I what we did find was the pandemic meant we got away from wet signed paper-based contracts. Hooray! Um, 
electronic signing went up a sort of 2000% in the month of March 2020. Incredible change that we don't now print documents and ask people to sign them with a ink pen and send them back and stuff. So that's changed. But we're still doing effectively having the same sort of documents. I think we've got so many platforms for contract management, project management, data management, information management, information modeling, that we need contracts that are part of that set of digital assets. The difficulty we've got is everyone's talking about smart contracts and smart contracts require a yes or no answer. Now, if you look at most construction contracts, we don't have yes or no answers. We have reasonable, we have subjective, we have somebody's opinion, we have reasonable skill and care, the reasonable satisfaction of the architect. We don't have objective measures. So until we can have yes, no answers for a computer that we can code a zero and a one, then we can't create smart contracts. That's not to say we can't have better digital contracts. And I think Worst thing that we could do at this point, Stu, is to put our current standard forms into smart contract programs or blockchain programs or digital programs and just churn out digital garbage. That, to me, would be a massively missed opportunity. We need contracts that are block-based, that are flexible, that will deal with things like modern methods of contracting. They're not dealt with properly by the standard forms at the moment, that deal with innovation, digital payment processes, not payment by check, for goodness sakes, digital payment processes we need but contracts that reflect programs that say right i've scanned the barcode you have delivered to site this you then are entitled to get paid we've checked that um digital time codes of all the labor that was on staff you're now entitled to be paid for those people who are on staff for that rate and everything else we can do so much more in construction if only we start from a different point of view because if we start from where we are with contracts it's going to be an absolute headache and the computer programmers are going to go why why are we starting from here we shouldn't be starting from here we should be starting again with something that's innovative digital fair transparent you know the construction playbook talks about innovation collaboration transparency digital fairness all this kind of stuff our contracts don't reflect any of that at the moment if we're gonna go for a modern construction sector we need modern contracts and modern contracts will not be paper-based, one-sided contracts. Now, some of the standard forms are fairly fair, but they're still not objective. They're very subjective. They're not um, reflecting the elements of the playbook all the way through. NEC is probably the closest. JCT is well off. Uh, but I think, you know, at the same time, we need to reflect the fact that globally, we've seen in other sectors, big companies saying, we can't get innovation in because our contracts are too long, too complicated. The innovative startups, the new um, kids on the block, they're not interested in our old fashioned way of doing things. They're not interested in the quill and ink sector um, written on papyrus for rolls and rolls and rolls. They want something innovative and new and the contracts need to reflect that. So, you know, I think there is going to be a groundswell of let's do things differently. Let's do things simpler. Let's build good collaborative long-term relationships let's make sure the construction sector i mean hallelujah makes a fair return because profit margins are shocking in the construction sector there's no reason why we shouldn't be getting 15 percent margin on projects we're doing valuable work we're providing valuable facilities data centers all sorts of infrastructure things that the world needs we should be paid for that we're not 
picking apples from a tree and selling them on of a cart. Yeah, yes, you can get a couple of percent if you're doing that, but we're doing something far more complicated. We should be getting a decent rate and a fair return. That should be hardwired into how we do business. But we can only do that when we've got good long-term relationships, simple contracts, transparency, trust, that kind of thing. So you know what? I think all of it will come of age. Whether or not I live to see the day when it comes of age depends partly on how long I live, but also partly how quick it is. Because change can happen overnight like it did in the pandemic when we went to e-signature. It can happen extremely slowly. Uh, and the construction sector has a mix. And I'm not quite sure where we are on the spectrum of mix. I, I feel this is great. It's innovative. It's starting with a fresh slate, a fresh clean piece of paper, which, uh, well, maybe not a piece of paper, but, you know, computerized platforms. And I think this is great for implementing down the line. So, you know, it, sometimes you get a supplier, a specialist contractor, might be a carpenter or a painter that comes in later on. And tr in the traditional route, uh, things have already been set out, the contract, the mission, and, and the decorator doesn't understand the mission of the project. So I like your idea of sitting down and, and, and having a proper agreement rather than just something imposed. How do you think we could join the dots then right the way through the supply chain to, to hit all those kind of markers that milestones that everybody's involved that everybody is there and everybody knows why they're there and everyone's batting off the same wicket if you like well i think one of the things we need to do is make sure that the sub 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 subcontractors don't get asked to sign a contract which refers to all the other contracts in the in the chain so they they then can't pick out what's important if everyone had a simple contract and you basically said you will comply with the quality standards in, in the main contract because that does need to go all the way through the supply network. And I call them a supply network because I think they're not a chain. We don't have a hierarchy. We're all interconnected, all really important. I think if quality standards need to through, go through and processes and nothing else, nothing else has to translate through the whole supply network. So once we've got those things sorted, we can have a simple contract that everyone can see transparency of contracting. So why don't we have a transparency of contracting rather than, you know, sending too much paper and just sort of effectively bullying people with the weight of paper that they're meant to look at in order to work out what they're doing? Um, that's not helping anyone. We can have simple contracts, processes that make sense to everyone in the supply network. So there's, you know, fairness, transparency, openness. People know when they're going to get paid, which is really important. But people also know what documents they need to share who has access, who can control it, who has rights and remedies, because we're going to have to be much more collaborative. And once we start putting data into shared data centers or common data environments, then we're going to have to realize that that's going to change. We can't really backtrack and reverse engineer who was responsible. So we need to kind of take a slightly more holistic approach and more collaborative approach to all that kind of stuff. So for me, I think the way we can solve this is making contracts simpler so that even if you were given 10 contracts for the people above you in the supply network, assuming you've got sort of sort of a hierarchy of above, but bear with it, if they were only four pages long, you could still read them. When you've got 10 contracts, all of which are 100 pages plus amendments plus other stuff, you're never going to read them. So, you know, we can make this a proper tool that works across the supply network. 
The other thing we might start looking at is multi-party contracts um, where everyone basically signs into some core principles and then we have maybe separate um, bilateral contracts, so two-party contracts between the payer and the payee. Um, but I think, you know, having much more openness rather than dictating like some sort of, you know, dictator would, um, political mongrel, um, telling people what they're going to do, saying, look, this is what we'd like to do, but you've got the expertise. Tell us how we can do this and let's work on it together. I have very rarely seen a design and build contract which didn't have a collaborative design of part of it, but that still required the contractor to take all the risk. How does that work? We want them to collaborate and take their expertise, and yet we want them to take all the risk. Mm, let's start risk managing rather than risk dumping. Let's, you know, realise how interconnected we are as a sector, and let's have tools and paperwork and charters, whatever they are, whatever we call them. They don't even need to be called terms and conditions. They could be how we manage expectations or how we work together. Or call it what you like, but let's make it accessible, innovative, useful rather than just something that people go, yeah, I signed it now, all my energy is drained, I need to go and have a lie down, a stiff drink, coffee, whatever, um, but I'm gonna shove it in a drawer because I never want to see that again. That, that's not a tool that helps anyone, that's just a waste of time and energy. Sounds like, uh, Sarah, it sounds like this will open up a whole vista of, of thinking in a completely new way. One of the things that we do in a traditional sense, we pay the contractor all the money, he distributes it in a, in a traditional contract to everybody else. So we're asking the contractor to a handle 80% of that, that money, 80% of that money, which is other people's money. So we're asking mm -hmm. the contractor to be custodian, the guardian of other people's money. Yeah. He's a builder. So yeah. we have developers and financiers that are actually, you know, they talk about um, financial risk and risk profiles, yet then they don't think about what's the risk profile within the contractor's organisation regarding handling cash because he's handling everybody else's money. He's a builder. Like, you know, why are, we, why are we still insisting that contractors and subcontractors for that matter handle 80% cash to, to pass on down the chain? Yeah, so I think there's a, a number of points. First of all, I don't think the builder is a he. I think they're definitely gender neutral because they're mostly companies. But I know that it's a traditional way of referring to contractors uh, um, in that sense. But I think the reality is most big construction companies are actually about money. They make more money by not paying their subcontractors on time than they do by actually doing the work. So we have to reflect the fact they've, they've, they've really moved away from their core objects and, uh, you know, the, the purpose they set up their company for. So then we need to think about what actually they are bringing to the party. You know, what skills are they bringing? Because if they're not good at managing money, they shouldn't be a contractor. Even if they're good at the contracting bit, they shouldn't be um, the contractor because, as you said, it's a huge part of their role. So we need to take a different approach. And I know that there are other contracts like um, EPCM contracts and engineer procure construction managed contracts where the contractor doesn't ha handle the money. They actually act as a contract. A construction manager or project manager and the money goes direct between the client and maybe this is what we're going to move towards more of these management style procurement routes where the contractor manages the works because that's their skill set money doesn't pass through them so it doesn't get caught up 
in that whole process. Now, the construction manager, the contractor could get more money this way because they're, you know, they're, they're getting paid a, a proper fee for the skills that they're bringing. And the same is true of all the subcontractors. So it, we don't know what's going to bring, but we know that the sort of the heady days of lump sum contracting have had a bit of a knock recently with the increased material costs. You know, some material costs were going up 60% in three months. You know, people aren't so happy about the idea of fixing a price for the future because we don't have the stability and the certainty of pricing. So I think that over the course of the pandemic and collaboration and lots of other things and with the view to net zero and all the other things that the construction sector is going to have to do and to solve its own skills shortage, we may be on the brink of a revolution in terms of the tools that we currently use. Now, I'd like to say that I'm leading a one-woman revolution in contracts. At the moment, it's still a one-woman revolution, but if, if anyone's happy to join me, I'd be happy to have them because I think it's really important that we use contracts to drive all these different bits of change that we want to see in the industry. And I think contracts can do that. They can change behaviours. They can subtly change the dynamics. Um, they can put the power back for the subcontractors and suppliers and stop them being trodden on or bullied by the bigger companies. I think they can also help to ask questions. You know, they can say, why do, why do we do it this way? Is this really the best way to be doing things? Um, because around the world, they don't all sign really 200 page contracts in order to do projects. So how did we get to where we are and why is it not best practice? So I think there's a debate to be had, but I still think that, you know, we need to work for the future and kind of future proof ourselves rather than every five years wait for another set of standard forms to come out, which we all have to understand and buy and everything else. And, uh, you know, we're being dictated to by the um, publishing companies. I'm not sure that they've necessarily got the best interests of the sector at heart. It's interesting that you talked about and touched upon behaviours and cultures. And typically, I thank you for picking me up on the, the gender neutral issue. And I called the builder a he. Now, you know, that's just an example of how, you know, old habits die hard. And so what do you think we could do to address those old habits, the, the old cultural ingrained way that we work in, in construction? Well, well, I suppose that one of the questions is, does the contract change behaviours? And we, we we pretty much know that on no project is the contract the source of a dispute. The source of the dispute is people's behaviours. Now, contracts can help to um, identify behaviours they want to have more of and to identify behaviours we want less of. Um, that doesn't necessarily work unless everyone's read the contract. So if you've got a massive project team of hundreds of people on site, but only two people who are actually aren't even site-based have read the contract, that doesn't work. So there's no reason why if we had simpler contracts, everyone couldn't have read them and set behavioural rules that we expect. Because if it was like a coaching relationship, a one-to-one -one relationship, we would set behavioural rules. We'd say set expectations. We'd say how we want people to behave. At the moment, most of the contracts assume um, behavioural standards are good practice. I think that's probably an assumption too far. I think we need to set it out, you know, have maybe uh, sector-wide standards for behaviours, a bit like the considerate contractor scheme, but, you know, across the project team so that we actually have a discussion and a debate and says, this is how we would like to be treated. 
you know, we know that there have been um, demonstration projects looking at sort of the time um, a project is open during the day. And that actually, if everyone's allowed to go home at four o'clock and that, that is a hard stop on site, lots of people get more time with their family. Then they can, you know, they, they are then more enthused and enthusiastic and productive when they're at work. Whereas if we have this sort of idea that the longer we're there, the better, well, that's not actually the case. The evidence shows that that's not true. So there's all sorts of best practice snippets going around and demonstration projects and stuff, but we're not actually seeing that change coming through. There's no reason why you can't put in a contract if you're a client that you don't want any retention. That then and and that the subcontractors shouldn't have retention. I know Network Rail has tried that sort of thing. I know you you can make sure that big clients can say, well, we're not going to put fitness for purpose in because we think that's a, a, a big stick to beat contractors with and it ends up only with the insurers anyway. But also we could say, and we want you to have family-friendly policies. But quite often they say, oh, you need to see our policies. Well, policies, you know, people don't read them. So if they just said, the hours of work on this site will be nine to four um, and on Fridays you get to go home at lunchtime, end of, the client can dictate that sort of thing. And then that has a ripple effect through the industry because then we see, oh, actually, I'd like to work on that project because they've got really good working hours or they've got a really good working culture or they've got, you know, fair payment or whatever. So we can start dropping stones in and seeing how the ripples go. We can't tell where the ripples will go and how big they will be necessarily. I don't think we necessarily need big stones. I think we need maybe lots of little ideas which come together to actually make the difference. But cultural change is always going to be difficult to achieve, um, whether it's through contracts or legislation or anything. I think, you know, cross-sector um, uh, change is difficult to implement. Clients have a big role to play with this. So do their funders. But also subcontractors and specialists also have to take responsibility for saying, no, I'm, I'm not putting up with this anymore. We need change. And I think it's going to be good for the whole sector. So I'm going to say I want change and I'm prepared to be uh, an ally or a you know vector for change. How could listeners find out more, get in touch with you and maybe work with you on, on, on this approach? So uh, I have a website, 500words.co.uk. I have a book site. So if you're interested in my books, it's just 500words.co.uk where you can get samples, downloads, free chapters and links to buying the books. Um, they're not very expensive. Um, I think they're, you know, paperbacks only £15 or whatever the dollar equivalent is. So uh, I've got five years of blog posts which talk about all sorts of different aspects of contracting, whether or not it's jargon or process or content or case law. So there's all sorts of content on there. There's also a huge bunch of free resources for, check, for checking contracts, checking that you understand them. Um, so all sorts of resources are available online that are free and available to access. And if you feel you need more help, I've got a contact page on my website. So feel free to contact me and send me an email. Um, the other thing that I'm interested in doing is actually spreading the news wider. So that's why I appear on podcasts, but actually speaking at conferences and speaking at events and talking to people about contracts, about how important the content, the branding and the process is for building good long-term relationships is what I want to do because then I can talk to more people, reach more people at the same time and get everyone in an organization on board. I have had big corporates come to me and say, well, I'm really interested, but I'm not sure I can sell it internally. 
invite me to your conference and I can persuade them. So if you've got, if you're part of a big company, invite me to a conference, I can persuade them, I can show them the difference. I can infuse and inspire them. If you're part of a smaller subcontracting, part of a trade association, the same applies. Because I've worked with the Federation of Master Builders for the last five years, trying to make sure that their contracts are good tools for their membership, rather than good legal documents. Because there's a subtle difference. A contract is a tool for the members and for the users. It is a legal document, but legal doesn't have to come first. It's not the top priority because we know that the vast majority of projects don't end up in a legal dispute. So we should create tools for that sector, not focus on the very small number that might go to court and therefore draft them for the court judges and the lawyers and everyone else. Uh -uh -uh. The users are far more important I think the data, which is a rough guess, is something like 0.007% of contracts signed globally end up in a serious dispute. So if we, if it's that small a number, why are we drafting the vast majority of contracts for that legal dispute and legal enforcement basis? Why aren't we drafting them for everyone else who uses them day in, day out? They never have a problem. They've never had an issue. They've solved any issues they've had really quickly. Why, are we draft, why aren't we drafting for those people, the pragmatic people, rather than the legally twitchy people? I'm totally with you on that one, Sarah. So time for a quick fire round? Yes. How do you start your day? Uh, four days a week, I start my day with a run, maybe followed by a Zoom fitness class or a swim. And then it's a single espresso and a cup of herbal tea. When are you most productive? Definitely in the morning. What's something new happening in your life right now? I'm planning a four-month cycle to Istanbul next year on a tandem with my husband. What does adventure look like to you? It looks like a four-month cycle to Istanbul <laughs> on, the, on the back of a tandem. But yeah, generally tandem cycling is pretty much high on my list of adventure. What thing would you love to do? that might surprise your friends and family? I'd love to do an ice mile swim, which is swimming a mile in water under five degrees centigrade. Name a challenge you overcame that changed your life. Uh, about 20 years ago, I slipped two discs and had six months lying in bed. Um, I overcame that through running, which was counterintuitive for a lot of people, but running changed my life. What inspires and motivates you? What inspires and motivates me? A lot of it is about creating useful things. I want to empower people rather than take it on myself. So I know a lot of lawyers say, oh, we'll do that for you. But I want people to be able to do it themselves. So I want people to be empowered, to be their best selves and to focus on what matters to them at work, which is generally not the paperwork. What does success mean to you? It means having fun, achieving your goals, whatever your goals might be. What advice would you give to your younger self? I'd say don't sweat the small stuff. I was quite a worrier when I was um, a child. I was anxious before exams. I was anxious before the start of school. My mum could see it. My mum was a teacher. She knew when term was coming. She didn't like how it affected me. And I've chilled out quite a lot. My 18-year-old son says, if you wouldn't worry about it tomorrow, don't worry about it today. And I wish I'd taken that advice when I was 18. Sarah Fox, you're a real inspiration, a breath of fresh air. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're more than welcome, Stuart. It's been a pleasure.
You've been listening to Construction Cashflow. Hit the subscribe button if you haven't already done so, so you never miss an episode. And remember, the faster cash flows, the faster wealth grows.